Hey, thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. If you like this episode, please follow us and tell one of your colleagues about the interview you're about to hear or have heard in the past. We hope you enjoy our conversations and that you'll listen to others in our library. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please reach out. We'll do our best to incorporate them. Thanks again. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Joanna Frank, the President and CEO of the Center for Active Design, an organization that promotes architecture and urban planning solutions to improve public health, which also operates the Fitwell Healthy Building Certification System. The Center for Active Design was launched by Mayor Michael Bloomberg in 2012 to transform New York City's groundbreaking active design program into an international movement which has expanded today to organizations across the country and the globe. And Joanna has been tasked with the role of leading this organization since that time. Our conversation takes us through the early days of the organization, how it began and brings us to today, and how the commercial real estate industry has been responding to this and other standards. There's a long road ahead, but the last two years have shown us that the need for these standards will only continue to be more relevant in the future. Welcome to the podcast, Joanna. China, good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm well. Where do we find you today? Where are you? I am in Brooklyn in uh, New York. Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, by way of introduction, Joanna, do you mind telling us a little bit about you know you and sort of how you got to where you are today, and a little bit about you know your 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 past? Sure, absolutely. Um, I think, like many careers, it's been a little bit of a circuitous path. Um, I actually started, I like to start here, I started at art school uh, where I studied fine art sculpture um, and then <laughs> transitioned into architecture, became a real estate developer, uh, worked for Michael Bloomberg as the mayor in New York City. Um, and that really was the kind of the pivotal moment of my career where uh, Michael Bloomberg introduced me to the idea of bringing data into the practice of real estate development um, and into design thinking. Um, and from there, we created the Center for Active Design, which is, is the organization I've run now for the last 10 years. Um, and the Center for Active Design is the operator of the Fitwell uh, Healthy Building Certification and Standard, um, which is very much the focus of our work these days. So it hasn't been a linear career, but uh, sure. it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And so then tell us a little about, bit about Center for Active Design. Um, you know, when was when when was your organization founded, kind of where it's based and sort of its sphere of influence, obviously not just with, you know, Fitwell, but but with other stuff that the organization does. Sure. So the Center for Active Design was launched actually by Michael Bloomberg himself uh, with me as the person leading it 10 years ago now. We actually had our 10-year anniversary this September. So our mission hasn't changed, and that is how do you translate public health research and data to inform uh, how we design, build, maintain our built environment uh, so that it's optimized for people. And I yeah. think what's interesting, when we were doing this work in New York City, it was called the Active Design Program. So that was the 
program that I ran uh, during the Bloomberg administration. And it was taking public health research, translating it to inform how New York City was investing in infrastructure and investing in its public buildings, as well as housing as well. Um, so we started with one city at scale, admittedly, uh, and that was you know kind of the beginning of our work. It's always been based in public health research. So that's yeah, really yeah. like how do you affect the whole population, right? We're not interested in just one or two buildings. We're really interested in like, how, do you, um, how do you raise the base for all buildings because that's how you impact public health. I think we've all become experts in public health now because of COVID, right? So we started with one city, admittedly a large one. Um, we then moved on to working across 50 cities across the U.S. Um, for some work we did around how our neighborhoods actually impact um, our civic health uh, and trust and social health. Um, now we are in 40 countries with FitWell. Wow. So, okay. yeah, we're in 40 countries, and I, I have no idea how many cities we impact these days. Um, so it's really about scale for us because, like I said, we want to – impact as many people as possible and the mission or goal for fitwell uh, the certification and standard is really to change uh, the practice of real estate so that health and the prioritizing the people within our buildings are always factored into the value proposition of real estate what you mentioned earlier about sort of using data to uh, make decisions about these things is, I think, extremely difficult and 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 important. Um, but I can imagine, so you know, coming out of one city and then trying to find similar data points in these other cities and other countries, uh, you know, tell us a, a bit about that challenge. I, I imagine that that has to be a big one. Yeah, um, it's actually easier, I would say, when you are looking at it from our perspective, which is from a people perspective. So we draw on the public health research, which is a global evidence base. So the kind of um, foundation for all of our work is actually over 5,600 peer-reviewed published uh, academic research studies. So this is why I think our, our work is a little easier than that is really looking at buildings and how do you optimize a building. We're saying how do you optimize an environment for people, which of course right. includes buildings. But the reason I think it's a little easier to scale it globally is that people, we as creatures, <laughs> actually respond the same way to light, the same way to temperature change, the same way to being able to see green space. Um, our mental health is affected by similar risk factors. So I, that in that regard, it's easier to scale because the public health research a is a global evidence base so we can already look at this from a from a global perspective and people um, re respond in a similar way to their environments so it's yeah. uh, it is actually easier than you would think to translate the evidence base globally where you really need to understand about differences from from a country perspective or region perspective um, are very much kind of on the policy and the implementation side yeah, yeah. And I wanted to kind of, you know, draw a line. This might be a very basic question, uh, but I, I do want to, you know, connect sort of what you do with the sort of mission of ESG in general, right? And also help our audience understand a little bit more kind of what why this is important and why this exists in the commercial real estate space as well. 
Absolutely. So we are very much part of the ESG conversation. So we, everything we do, uh, everything that Fitwell does and, and classifies belongs in the S category of ESG. So if E, which is environmental, not energy, <laughs> but environmental, um, is looking at risk from a bricks and mortar perspective. So if we just take an example like flood risk. So environmental is looking at like, is what is the bricks and mortar risk to my real estate from uh, a rise in sea levels or increased flood risk? We, from the S perspective, the social perspective, the people perspective, are saying what are the risks to people from that flood event? Um, but also, what is the perception of risk coming from a people perspective? Because that is going to affect the value of your real estate way in advance of it actually physically flooding. So, you know, obviously, we all understand what that means, right? I'm looking at a piece of real estate, and it's in a flood zone. Um, I'm going to have to assess my own either company or personal level of uh, risk and whether I'm w willing to tolerate that risk if it's in an area that's likely to flood um, or what the likelihood of that is as far as a long-term investment is concerned or, or short-term investment, et cetera. So people are already factoring in um, things like flood risk and climate change and all of those things into value. So uh, another example would be an increase in uh, temperature. So if you're increasing the air temperature of the city, let's take a city like Phoenix, for example, um, if you're getting to the point now where you actually can't sustain human life outside without going into buildings, right? it's actually too hot for us to be able to thrive for any length of time when it's 110, 120 degrees. So all of these things are going to affect the value of real estate because they are affecting the quality of life of the people who make the decisions about the value of real estate, i.e. us. So we are S, um, and we've reach, recently actually put out um, a document which we can share with folks, which is um, defining S metrics, because the E metrics are well-defined at this point. Yeah, Environmental yeah. sustainability has been around for 30 years. Um, the discussion around ESG from an E perspective has been really in full flow for at least a decade at this point. S is much more nascent, um, and there really isn't a consensus about the definition for S or what those metrics are. Um, so we actually only just a couple of months ago put out a list of metrics, which are S metrics. Um, so that folks can start to see that this is quantifiable, that these do represent material risk, um, and that none of this stuff is um, rocket science, right? This is this about tree canopy and flood risk and uh, how, well how well maintained your property is and how walkable the community is. All of these things impact your financial risk um, from a people perspective, from a social perspective. And I think that's a very important point that you're making is that this is really about the value of this real estate, right? And the consequences mm -hmm. yep. of sort of not not taking care of these things um, that that could have on the value of your property and your assets and and you know that kind of thing. W with that in mind, um, how quickly are you seeing the industry, you know, you know, really kind of making this a priority in in what they're doing? And, and 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 again, this might be a basic question, but just from sort of your your perspective, you you've been around now for about a decade. You 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 know said, are you you know on target in terms of where you wanted the adoption of this to be? Um, uh, do you feel like the the industry could do better? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the S metrics are still the least reported on metrics for ESG. 
So there's still a big area of opportunity when it comes to S. Um, and we're really seeing now that the real estate industry has pretty much optimized its E strategy. And most of the low-hanging fruit for E has probably already been enacted or has, you know, targets have been set around it. And so we are definitely seeing like as folks are like, okay, how do I increase my ESG rating? How do I continue to use this approach to quantifying risk? And they're, you know, they're moving down now. <laughs> along the list uh, from E to S. So we're seeing right. a lot of folks who are either being forced to report on ESG because they are publicly traded or they are uh, raising capital out of Europe or they themselves are a public pension, etc. Um, and so as there's more scrutiny around ESG um, and as the pressure really is to compete on your ESG rating, um, the S is that lower hanging fruit than E at this point because it's the area that has the greatest potential upside because people are, are really doing the least around S or quantifying the least actually. It isn't that you aren't doing stuff, it's that you aren't quantifying it. That's the big that's the big kind of takeaway, I would say, that a lot of a lot of these factors that are S factors are just one oh one real estate, things like location. <laughs> we all yeah. know that the location of a property has the greatest impact on its overall value. But the reason that that location has the greatest impact on value is because of that people perspective, because of that social perspective, because you are responding to the demand in the market and that demand directly reflects society's priorities. So people will pay more to live in a neighborhood that is walkable. People will pay more to put their office in a location that has access to uh, mass transit, um, People will pay more for properties that uh, have access to green space. And if you're actually on a park, they'll pay even more <laughs> than that. Um, so sure. all of these things, we understand drive value, but we don't necessarily understand how to quantify it. And so that's yeah. what we're really showing real estate is that this is quantifiable. Um, and you may understand that location is driving value, but even the most sophisticated real estate investors in the world aren't consistently measuring that risk from even a location perspective. So that's the yeah. other thing. It's like having these consistent metrics, and that's what ESG is imposing on the industry, right? It's saying you need to consistently measure risk so that we can compare your assets, your portfolio, your entity across other entities, and then we can start to have that understanding of risk from from this new perspective so so that's kind of what we're doing this isn't about reinventing real estate right this is about quantifying what is already affecting the value of your real estate um, we just did a piece of research with Quadrail, who are the real estate owning um, and operating entity for British Columbia pension plans. So that whole region of Canada, Quadrail uh, manages um, and operates their assets um, and, their and their investment. And so we just use that portfolio. We work with Quadrail to assess that portfolio against Fitwell, which is basically defining the characteristics of a healthy building. We correlated that data set that Fitwell created with their tenant satisfaction and we found for the first time, this research hadn't been done before, that there is actually a direct correlation between the way you operate your property. So things that people really can't see, like how good is the indoor air quality, yeah, what is your yeah. pest management protocol, like all these things that you don't see. It was those strategies that had the strongest correlation with tenant satisfaction and net promoter score, and therefore one can say value. So these are the kind of insights that 
are coming now to the fore that we have enough data and that we're looking at it from this people perspective. Yeah. So let's focus then on Fitwell as a standard, right? What what does it do? How is it implemented? How is it um, you know distributed through the industry, if you will, right? Um, and you know, tell us sort of how how you see that part of it fit with your overall strategy. Sure. So Fitwell is kind of the evolution of that thinking. How do you translate the global evidence base around public health into practical, implementable design and operational standard that can be used across all asset classes? So we really took all of this information that we were doing kind of in a more bespoke manner per city, and we we said, okay, how do we make this into a standard that can be used by every real estate asset? And that's what Fitwell is. Um, we did not do it alone. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the US CDC, actually did the research and did a lot of that um, uh, review of the evidence base and came up with an algorithm that quantified the strength of the body of evidence and the measurable impact on different health um, characteristics, physical health, mental health, and social health and quantified all of that so that we can really say not just that these design strategies, these operational strategies have an impact on various different aspects of health, but we can also say that they also say that they have a quantifiably different impact on health. And you can start to see that kind of relative impact on health and therefore set standards and priorities around health, uh, which is really important, right? That's, that's a really important piece of insight. All things are not equal. All things impact health in different ways um, and therefore actually impact risk in different ways. Um, so Fitwell is a standard that really defines the characteristics of healthy buildings and healthy communities. So we don't just look at buildings. We also have a standard that looks at the site level. So it could be looking at a master plan community or an industrial complex, et cetera, as well as buildings. So we have all of the design and um, operational strategies that are backed by that evidence base. So every strategy has to have a strong body of evidence that shows the connection between that strategy and its overall impact on health. Um, and so that's what the Fitwell standard is. And then we as a company have put that Fitwell standard onto a sophisticated tech platform so that the real estate industry can use the standard to assess an individual asset and say, how does this individual asset stack up against this standard that defines a healthy building, but also how do I then use that at a portfolio or at an entity-wide scale? So how do I start to then use this information to inform how I'm looking at my whole portfolio of assets? Um, and that in turn is creating a data set for you. So like we were talking about with Quadrail, obviously the information that they have at a portfolio level is made up of all of those individual assets. And then they can start to look at how the portfolio is actually um, performing against health and then how it's performing against financial metrics and start to see those correlations. So we yeah. are both like asset level as well as entity-wide data. So asset level certification against the standard and then all of that information um, is wrapped up into a data set which you then can use um, at that entity-wide level. And it's worthwhile uh, also mentioning, I don't know if you said this um, already, Joanna, so I apologize if you did, but the the standard is primarily at, at the moment focused on existing properties. Is that correct? Our users, actually. 
uh, existing. Sorry, properties. users. Yeah, so the standard can be used for both existing properties as well as properties that are in design. So again, because it's a tech platform, it's kind of a make-your-own-adventure. So you go in and you identify this as an existing asset or this is an asset that is under design, and the system will then take you through a different path depending on which of those. So looking at the same characteristics, but obviously from a different perspective because you'll be able to demonstrate compliance using plans as opposed to using photographs. Um, but because we are really working with the industry at scale, our users reflect existing assets more than new because they're using it across a whole portfolio or a whole entity. 80% of the properties that we certify are existing assets and 20% are new, which is kind of what you would expect if you're looking at working with institutional investors who have portfolios of assets, you know, the majority of which are existing. Sure. What have been some of the challenges in adoption? I, I imagine, you know, the industry over the last decade or so, you know, has, you know, been privy to to a number, number of different standards, right? Um, and n not to, you know, trivialize what, you know, you guys are doing, but, but you know, sometimes folks in the industry could, you know, lump this into just, oh, it's, it's just another standard, Right. Um, but, but, but what, what are, what are some of the sort of, you know, counterpoints to, to that? I mean, you've spoken about, you know, the value of the property and that's, that's why it's really important, but uh, what are some other sort of, a, you know, typical objections that you hear about it and, and, and how do you over overcome them? Yeah. So I would say that we are unique in the market in that we're looking at the value of real estate from that people perspective as opposed to the bricks and mortar perspective. So pretty much all the rest of the standards are saying, how do I make the best box, right? How do I optimize the building? We're saying, how do you optimize the environment for people, which is giving you a different perspective? Um, and I think COVID has been a game changer in that the demand for healthy buildings and the demand for looking at our built environment from a people perspective has skyrocketed, obviously. Um, so before COVID, the commercial real estate industry was really listening to its tenants because tenants, especially tenants who were competing for talent, so tech and finance, et cetera, um, they were hearing loud and clear from their employees that their employees valued a healthy environment and that in order to attract that talent and retain that talent, they needed to be putting their offices, um, their workplaces into locations that were optimized for the people their employees. <laughs> um, and now we're seeing that expand across all asset classes where yeah. residential is also now saying, people are saying, I want to live in an environment that is promoting the health of my family. Um, and the reason I keep saying the environment and not just the building is that it isn't just the bricks and mortar, right? It isn't just the box that we live in. It's also the, lo the location of that box as well. What is the street like around where I'm living? You know, do I have access to parks? Can I walk to a shop? Can I walk to schools? Um, do I know my neighbors? Um, do I feel safe? Do I trust my neighbors? All of these things are affected by the design 
of the neighborhood, the design and maintenance of the buildings, et cetera, in a way that's quantifiable. And all of it now is responding to demand. So real estate, you know, core business for real estate is to optimize the value of your assets. I believe it's also your fiduciary responsibility. Having been a real estate developer, seem to remember that, 101. Um, and so in order to maximize the return on yeah. investment from a real estate perspective, you have to consider the demand in the market and the demand in the market is for healthy buildings and it is for environments that are really optimizing the quality of life of people. Um, and that is only going to increase with climate change, right? So climate change is happening. Um, even if we are able to keep it to a minimum, um, it is already affecting people's uh, health and well-being. It's also affecting it in a way that isn't equal. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so in order to future-proof your assets, there's going to be an even stronger emphasis on looking at how do I create an environment that is optimized for people? Because if this building um, becomes too expensive to run because I'm you know, located somewhere that's 120 degrees for, I don't know, months on end, right, then that's going to become enormously expensive to maintain an optimum environment for people within that building. And it's going to be hard to attract people to that location because they aren't going to want to walk outside because it's, you know, not um, not optimum for people. It's not good for your health to be out in that kind of temperature. Or if the air quality is poor because of forest fires or if, because you're in flood risk, that's going to increase stress, which increases, you know, kind of mental health issues. So in order to future-proof your assets, there has been a big shift in the understanding of real estate investors that they need to be thinking about the people in their buildings and not just the assets themselves. And so that is... That's new thinking, and that kind of happened during COVID. That investors were like, "We need to think about people in our building." <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, and to to a to a very large degree as well as 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 we know, people are um, uncomfortable going back into the offices, at least in certain you know cities, maybe more so than others. Um, certain companies, uh, you know, allow for more flexibility than than you know others do, but you know, people are concerned, right? Um, having said that, I am curious. You know, are there some parts of the industry that have looked at Fitwell, you know, more seriously or have adopted it more eagerly than others? So you mentioned obviously office. You mentioned you know multifamily. You mentioned industrial. Um, do, do you do you are those the three that have been maybe more active? But have you also seen it in hospitality and retail and other other markets too? Yes, absolutely. So I would say all of the above. <laughs> now, you know, in a post-COVID world. Uh, so the order of adoption that we've seen from, from our perspective, which is probably a pretty good one, is that commercial assets were already thinking about the health of their tenants and the employees, the individuals in their buildings pre-COVID because the market was already demanding it before COVID. It has now skyrocketed in the in order to attract those tenants and that talent back into the office, you're now going to have to compete with their residential setups in most places, right? You're no longer competing with other commercial buildings. You're now competing with in individual employees saying, no, I'd rather work from my bedroom. Thank you very much. Um, so entirely new challenge for the commercial industry, but, but they are very much focused on indoor air quality and really creating an environment from an office environment perspective that is actually optimized 
um, in relation to sitting alone in your bedroom, right? Because we are social creatures. Anyway, so yes, commercial were the first to adopt it and have continued to adopt um, this perspective um, at pace. We were not seeing very fast adoption from the multifamily or the residential sector pre-COVID because although in investors were asking for ESG metrics around multifamily, the individuals were not demanding it when they were looking for apartments or for housing. Interesting, yeah. So you kind of had this disconnect where the developers in the middle were saying, well, I need it for my ESG score or I need it in order to attract investment from X sovereign wealth fund or pension plan or whomever but I'm not seeing it actually, I'm not seeing that demand coming from individuals. So it was a kind of a hard sell on the multifamily side. That's changed completely. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. multifamily is now the fastest growing sector on their use of farewell. So that's, um, they're also catching up with the ESG conversation. Multifamily was a little slower um, to the table around ESG as well. And then industrial is our kind of, um, it's interesting to watch industrial. So we actually put out a piece of uh, a report at the beginning of this year about the opportunity in the industrial sector, very much linked actually to staff turnover. So we did a report, we did some analysis on the industrial sector and how it's primed really to kind of take on this approach of looking at the people within those buildings and the workforce from that perspective. Um, and some of the stats that were making it really kind of prime were that in 2021 in the US, the industrial sector saw a 60% turnover in staff. Um, and a lot of the reasons for that turnover were health. So it was stress, um, it was a lot of stress actually, um, workplace yeah, accidents, yeah. health and safety, um, fears around COVID, uh, burnout, all of these kind of things. So people were voting with their feet and having 6% turnover in a lot of these neighborhoods and a lot of these communities where you're going to run out of a workforce really quickly um, and then you're not going to be able to obviously run your, your business anymore. So we were expecting that to be a slow burn from the industrial perspective. We thought we were going to have to do a lot of kind of building demand, showing the business case, you know, kind of finding a few um, leaders in the industry who would, would be willing to kind of adopt FitWell and then we would be able to do our analysis around value and so on and show and show that correlation, which which is there. Um, but what are we, only nine months later and industrial is all over it. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, really very interesting. Fast uptake from industrial where people have gone from the beginning of the year being like, yeah, no, there's no demand to now like, don't you have an industrial standard? Uh, we need to, we, our tenants are asking for this or our investors are asking for this. And what can we do for our industrial? So that's flipping much faster than we, we would have expected as far as uh, the adoption was concerned. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, are you then having to, um, you know, because of that, adapt some of the FitWell standard uh, uh, that you know that you guys have? Is that is that been a challenge then, um, or or not as much? It's uh, you know seems to be all kind of you know fitting well together. Yeah, so I think we have we have expanded the um, impl implementation of the standard. So the, because we're looking at people. 
Um, it isn't that different to change into different asset classes, right? Because you're dressing the same people. The multi- people living in multifamily are the same folks working in those industrial properties or working in those office buildings. So the evidence base is the same. The implementation is different. Actually, the health impact is different depending on whether it's a residential or a workplace setting. Um, where we have to do a lot more research is when we're actually looking at different health outcomes because we're looking at a different population. So we've just done a new standard, which is around senior assisted living and memory care. Um, So that actually required us to go back to the evidence base and look at the research around how do you optimize an environment for senior adults who have different health outcomes and respond to environments in a different way. So there we had to basically start from the beginning again uh, in order to create a standard which was specifically designed to optimize the health for that uh, older adult, and you're really talking about 80 plus when it comes to senior assisted um, living and memory care. So that was really important. We did that with Harrison Street, who are one of the big equity providers into the senior um, into the senior operators. So that yeah. was an entirely new standard based on a different evidence base, di- based on a different set of health outcomes. Obviously, it was very timely then when COVID happened. Uh, we were just in, the, <laughs> we were just about to release it, and we had to kind of pause on that because obviously the industry was overwhelmed and we needed to make sure that we had our ducks in a row when it came to impacting um, infectious disease as well as mental and physical health. Yeah. So, so yeah. that one we just came out with. Um, we don't have a standard around schools. So that's a perfect example of where looking at the evidence base, you'd need, we'd need to go back to the, the evidence base again to look at how a built environment impacts children because children actually respond differently to their built environment. They have different health needs um, than adults. So we don't have a school standard yet. We would like to expand into schools, um, but that will require us going back to the research to do that. Um, but if we're dealing with adult populations, then it's, it's applicable across different asset classes. Yeah, interesting. Uh, who have been some of the early adopters of uh, this standard? Um, some of the companies that have sort of jumped on board and have been great partners with you? Yeah. Um, so it tends to be the folks who have large portfolios of assets. So our earliest adopters were REITs. Um, so people like uh, Kilroy and Alexandra and Hudson Pacific and uh, Venado. And then real estate owners like uh, Tishman Spire with large portfolios of assets. Um, We now have folks like Brookfield using Fitwell. Um, We have the pension plans. Uh, I already mentioned Quadrail, who represent British Columbia. Um, Nuveen, who represent TIAA CREF. So these large owners of real estate uh, portfolios. Um, And then we do have some tenants too. So we have folks like... um, Oh, Meta, that small company, and Microsoft, um, (laughs) and Salesforce, and Dropbox. So folks who are really like looking at how do I create an optimum environment for my workforce, understanding that they're in a very tight labor market and really looking to compete for that talent. So yeah, we have a really good mix now. What you'll notice about those folks is that they're all really large companies. (laughs) Yes, yeah. So, I mean, because we're talking very much, the motivation here is around ESG, you know, it's around institutional investment, it's around quantifying risk at a portfolio scale. Um, And we, we have also really looked at, you know, we want market transformation and the way that we believe you come, you bring about market transformation is you basically kind of go up the food chain and look at who is controlling the largest number of assets. So every time, oh, Blackstone is using Fitwell as well. They just went public um, with using Fitwell. So if you can 
um, work with these very large organizations to adopt FitWell and really be looking at health and quantifying health, um, then obviously that trickles down into individual assets. Um, it, it trickles down across the whole market. So those would be yeah, absolutely. some of the folks. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Great. Um, the, the first decade has um, you know brought innovation and penetration into the market. It also brought you COVID. <laughs> now that you're looking at sort of post-COVID into the next decade of uh, you know the Center for Active Design, where do you put your focus? Sure. So just last year, we created a second entity, um, which is, so we now have a nonprofit and a for-profit. Um, Active Design Advisors is our uh, for-profit entity, and we took on investors this year for the first time. Um, so the investors, um, we actually have gone public. Uh, one of them is Venture Capital, RET Venture, and actually Kilroy, who I already mentioned, and then one other. Um, and so what that's allowing us to do is to really invest in our technology. So we are going from being a kind of a per-asset benchmark and certification platform to one of really data insights. So supporting both, supporting that per-asset perspective and then also supporting that industry-wide and entity-wide understanding of what is good, what is better, and what is what is best. You know, one of the issues yeah. for the S part of ESG is that it hasn't been defined as far as uh, the aspiration of S, right? E has has better branding, quite family, frankly, than S. Um, everybody's saying, like, I want to be net zero. We don't have the equivalent for S. We don't have that aspiration um, as yet stated. So it's really our kind of responsibility to show the industry what excellent look excellence looks like, and we looks like, and we can do that with our um, data platform, right? So we can show you this is the entire industry, this is just your asset class, this is just your region, and then this is how your portfolio and your individual assets stack up against this. And then we can also look at the correlation between this and value metrics and so on and so forth. So that's the next step for us. It's taking this kind of next step along the way, which we had always uh, envisioned. And that is how do we feed the data back to our users so that it's now driving decision making around how they're investing in their existing portfolios, how they're using it for due diligence when they're looking to acquire new portfolios of assets or invest in individual assets. Um, how do you use it to quantify risk and opportunity? Right, It's, right. It, it's there. It's there at your fingertips. Um, so how do we do this? Yeah. Um, throughout the industry, then, do companies work with you directly or do you also allow for sort of a network of, you know, contractors or, you know, consulting firms to, you know, help those who want to employ FitWell to do it that way as well? Yeah. So I would say that it's, yes, uh, folks do both. So Boston Properties, another one of our big and early users, um, obviously a big REIT, um, they have like a big sustainability team. So they use FitWell and do it in-house because they have the kind of, um, they have the workforce, you know, they have the talent in-house to do that. Other folks are using um, consultants because they don't have the bandwidth or they want to move faster than their in-house teams can do. Um, so we're seeing a real mixture. We're seeing a lot of consultants who are using FitWell with their clients um, and then we're seeing kind of the in-house approach as well. So it's you don't need a consultant to use FitWell. Like the tech makes it very accessible and makes it very kind of user-friendly 
we do a lot of the work of translating it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the yeah. point. That's our job. Um, but if you want to move faster, then you have the in-house capability to do. Or, um, you know, if, if this isn't your core expertise as a company, a lot of folks are like, you know, we want to outsource this, right? Our teams are all about asset management or operations or acquisition, and we always outsource um, certification and our ESG work. So we see a big mixture, and yes, we support the consultants who are working with a huge number of our clients. Um, and then we see a mixture. We see some folks who do some of it in-house, and then once they've got a certain amount of momentum in a particular fund or a particular asset class, then they're handing it over to a consultant um, so that they can scale it. So, yeah, it's um, it's a mixture of both, but the, yeah. the consultants are... Um, really critical in this because we as a company don't want to be that big. We're certainly not intending to become consultants ourselves, right? We want there to be a nice bright line between us setting the standard and and identifying all of those trends and those correlations and then folks actually working with, with the industry to um, enact the standards and, and make those changes. So, yeah, it's a big industry too. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So we started this conversation with, you know, your your background and sort of how the winding road of your career got <laughs> you got you to where you are. Um, I'd like to conclude sort of there as well, but with a slightly different angle, maybe a little bit about, you know, lessons learned and maybe, you know, what 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 advice would you give your, you know, younger self going into this industry or going you know, trying to go into this industry, let's say somebody who is really interested in this space, um, what would be a good way to, you know, get their feet wet or get engaged in it more? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that I am truly energized by the development process and by our built environment. You know, I love just to walk around neighborhoods. It gives me a real energy. It gives me a real buzz. Um, and I love the business of real estate. So I used to be a real estate developer um, and I love our colleagues, right? So all of those folks who are working with us as partners um, in real estate, whether they're investors, whether they're you know running um, assets themselves, operating assets themselves, or designing them. We haven't really talked about the architects and so on, but you know have a critical piece. But like, I really love all of the different pieces of the puzzle, and I think that 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 keeps it really interesting. Like the fact that it is such a multifaceted industry, and that I, I get real, um, I find it fascinating. You know, I don't have a I don't run a portfolio of assets, so I love having yeah. conversations with our partners who do have that perspective and really listening and learning from that. So um, I would tell my younger self, patience is a virtue, as my grandmother always used to say to me. <laughs> I am a pretty like fast-moving person, um, and sometimes patience is difficult for me. Um, so, I yes, it's... We are in a marathon and not a sprint. So I think uh, I need to remember that. Um, and someone else said, you can't sell health if you are busted yourself, which doesn't sound so good when you, <laughs> when you say it. Right. <laughs> but right. I think that that is also a very good lesson, not just to my younger self, but everybody who is, um, you know, kind of working really hard and maybe loses that balance a little bit sometimes between their own health <laughs> and the thing that they're passionate about uh, as far as exactly company, especially building well, a company, right? I mean, it's uh, an all-consuming uh, proposition or it can be. Um, so yeah, yes. patience and balance. That's just, just that. No problem. 
Well, Joanna, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This was, uh, you know, very interesting and uh, love to learn more about what you guys are up to and look forward to hearing more in the future. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business. Mm-hmm.